Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Sunday afternoon. Long day. We just had a VOD Rabbana meeting here. Although we we're going to start earlier. Um, today I want to do the bio. I'm going to have to actually squeeze two in this week for a certain reason. Uh, and I have the time now for a show. So let's see what we can do today. Uh, podcast is being sponsored one of two by the Rechthans, by Mrs. Rechthan. Um, in memory, today's the two. Uh, let me see now. Today's two days in Adar. So this is the yard of her father, of her dad, uh, who passed away in 2000. That's a 21-year yard site. And uh, she wrote me that her father was a, oh boy, he was from Lodge, and he went, that means, I'll tell you, he's a Polish idiot, that means he went through six years of the Holocaust. Six years. Think about that. She said, my father was from Lodge, and he was, before that, a, a follower of the Pabnitzer Rebbe, Brother Ger Rebbe, I never heard of him, but you know the Ger, they have the the whole Poland, Central Poland was divided into two teams: the Orioles and the Yankees. One was the Ger Hasin, one was the Alexander, and they used to fight. So he was on the Orioles, let's say. Uh, and he went through the war, like I said before, the Polish took it really hard. He really was a Udmutzomesh, and it says he was a young man when the war broke out. He suffered in the large ghetto many concentration camps. Yep, that's right. As the sole survivor of his family, boy. And, but the, but the good news, if you can say the word good news, is that she writes that they had the first grandson named after him, uh, Yaakov Yerachmiel. Well, that speaks for itself. I'll tell you again. Uh, so uh, listen, any one day in the Holocaust was terrible. Goes without saying. But the Polish was from the beginning of the war. It was just unbelievably terrible. So you pay tribute to the memory of Shem Shambali. Today's the yard site. Now. I was looking, and I saw one name I could easily sink my teeth into, and that's the Levush. That's what I want to talk about today. Mordechai Yafi, big rabbi. I've, in the course of these uh, talks, these different podcasts, I'm little by little going through wiping out everybody in the 1500s and 1600s, I see. Or more or less the big names. Especially anybody connected with the Shulchan Aruch, you know. Um, at least I think I have. Or the Golden Age of Poland. Our hero today were Mordechai Yafi, who... Uh, Lived to be an old man. It's not so usual in those days. From 1530 to 1612. I mentioned once before the Ghetto of Vienna. He died on the, just in the middle of the scandal about the Ghetto of Vienna. He was one of the big people, big rabbis in uh, Poland. But from the big biggies. Uh, and yet, he had a funny uh, reception history, shall we say. So let's get down to it. Our hero was born in Prague. This is a city we've come to over and over again. Prague is not in Poland. It's near Poland. And Prague was a major center of learning and of machlikas. Boy, oh boy. Big learning, big machlikas. That's the history of Prague. And the here was born in, um, let's see, 1530. One second here. One thing interrupted. Sorry about that. Don't like to get interrupted. Anyway, 
if um, he was born in 1530, so that means that the golden age of Poland was beginning. It was actually in full swing. Here's somebody, if he's born in 1530, he's growing up in the 1540s. I know his name don't mean too much to you, but by that time, Poland is really hot, radioactive hot in terms of learning. It has overtaken Prague, Major Malcolm Torah. I might point out that the guy who started the golden age of learning, super duper pilpul, super duper schmooper pilpul, these were Prague rabbis <laughs> who ran away from Prague. I'm talking about Rabbi Yaka Pollock and people like that. They ran away because the Machlokes in Prague, they went to Poland. There they uh, really took off. I spoke about Shalom Shachna and all that in the past. Now, in the case of our hero, Mordechai Yafi, his father was a rob. All of his life he came from money. Otherwise, none of the story would happen. If you didn't have a side income, you wouldn't have the time to devote yourself to scholarship once upon a time. He obviously was very smart. And he went to Poland as a teenager to learn the two big yeshivas there, the Marshal and the Ramo. The Marshal was in Lublin and the, and what do you call it? The, the Ramo is in uh, Krakow. Okay. And uh, I, I would say, by the way, and I'm not the only one, that the Lavush, our hero today, Mordechai Avi, kind of picked up the meters of both of those. Uh, I'm going to use terms that I shouldn't use uh, because you misunderstand them, but I'll do it anyway. The right wing is that we got from the Marshal and the left wing is that we got from the Ramon. You'll see what I mean by those terms. I don't mean in the 20th century term. And uh, he even had a Rebbe, Rabbi Matisiola Delacroix, who uh, was into Kabbalah, which is interesting. And uh, But a very peculiar and very specific type of Kabbalah, which is bound up with secular studies. And that's what our hero is going to do. So let's follow the story forward, because it's actually very interesting. Here's somebody, born 1530, by the 40s, I mean, I'm sure, whatever, early teen years, he goes to Poland. He's a Bachar learning the Yeshiva. Uh, and he's very smart and so forth. He's learned by one, then by the other. And he's in the full yeshiva system. Let me say this. Um, in Poland, in that era, there were, you know, basically two styles of yeshivas. One was super lambda, super pilpalistic. The chalukim that I spoke about before, I don't want to cause it over again. You know, you take five different pilpals, you tie them all together, you ask a grand kasha, then you insert in many ways, and then it ties into another one, ties into another one. The more, in other words, let's put it this way, the sheer clawly is a six or seven hour business, and I don't mean to exaggerate when I say that. Okay? So pure lumbus hair splitting that goes in a six hour, seven hour shear. Imagine sheer clawly six hours. Uh, either you say, I give up, or you say, this is crazy, or you say, oh my God, this guy's unbelievable. You hear Rabbi Yaakov Pollock, you Shalom Shachna, whoa, 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 this lumbus is way over, you know, it's unbelievable. And it's all based on the assumption that you have not only kashas and contradictions and shas between explicit sources, but implicit sources, and implicit of implicit of implicit. So I've talked about it in other times, I don't want to spend a half hour on that. Let's just say our hero grew up in that. And he, um, he was, he, as we say today, he was a good bacher, no, so he could give chaburas. To use the modern language. At the age of 20 or something like that, 21, 22, he moved back home. He's very good in learning. And as he moves back home to Prague, he had money. I say, make your own yeshiva. Why not? Now you have to understand, all these guys like this. Money they had. So what does it mean to have money? I'll give you very specific. They had a certain amount of money from the parents. Maybe got married to somebody rich. I don't know. 
And that money's invested. So you've got to watch your investments. You have to know how to make your investments. It's not necessarily something that requires 24-7. It requires not taking your eye off the ball, but you can put a lot of time for learning if that's what you wish to do. And so you had these types of people who were, I don't want to use the word balabas, but I will. He's a balabas, but he has a yeshiva too. It's a certain type of Jewish history. The Rajah was not, not unlike that, as I mentioned before. So uh, our hero, he's in his 20s. And because he's got everything he wants, so he can run a yeshiva in Prague, which is like running a yeshiva in B'nai Brock or Lakewood or something like that. Plenty of yeshivas there. Big Malcolm Toro. And uh, what am I talking about? He's in his 1550s. 1550s, get it? The um, uh, Years matter. I can't help it. You know, people go, can't go around and say, like this, don't bore me with the facts and all the rest of it. Believe me, I understand that all my life people are, Want to know history without the the, the facts? <laughs> but um, here he's in Prague, and one thing it becomes clear as you're Rosh Hashiva, it's one thing to give the Lomdish Hashira, you know, getting your vomus ksubis, you know, that sort of thing. There's another one to know what the din is, the halacha, the rabbinic side. Now he learned by the Ramah, where it's emphasized the the, the halacha side. He also learned by the uh, Marshal who is into the halacha side, but be'iyun gadol, you know, like in a crazy way. You have to learn this, this, and this just to answer a shiloh. I'm not saying that the marshal the was wrong. Nobody said he's wrong. He just says it's not possible to learn that way, super aim for every every question that runs up. You know, somebody comes and asks you, what do I do with the milk of a spoon from a fleshly pot? Well, give me two days, three days, to learn through the Gemara and all the Roshanim and this and that and the other, and then I'll give you an answer. It doesn't work like that, Okay. And uh, it begins to be clear to him, this is his personal natia, that there's a problem that the kids come out knowing how to learn. They don't know halach at all. Right? Just then, okay, uh, where he's located in 1550s in Prague, with his nice little yeshiva and so on and so forth, uh, the base Yosef starts to be published. No, there's a nearby Venice. Prague is not that far away from Venice. I mean, it's not close. You got to go across Central Europe, you know, through Austria, and then into Northern Italy. But it's not the end of the world either. And Venice was big headquarters of the um, book publishing, the Jewish book publishing, which was um, obviously revolutionizing learning in the same way that the internet is revolutionizing learning nowadays. The internet and the art scroll and all that kind of stuff. Even though people poo-poo and all the rest of it, I'm talking Masifta, you know, all these different things. It's got to revolutionize it. So here he is in the 1550s, and this guy from Israel, who's who's the big gun. Everybody knew Yosef Kar was a big deal. No question about that. In his, in his time, even though he was far away from Europe, people held for him. The Ramal writes to him like, whoa. You know, they're not on the same level. The Ramal writes to him very obsequiously. And here comes the base Yosef. And our hero said, this is great. Now we're going to have something called Kitzvah Shukhar, so to speak. And it was enthusiastically received in the from world, basically because people are spending so much time in learning, they don't have time for halacha. And here you have a book that will open the halacha for you. But he goes on to say that as he went in there, he saw it's too ma'arich. I mean, who's going if you sit down and make a seder to go to the whole base Yosef, or Chaim, Ebenezer, Yorday, and so forth, the Koshim Mishpah, 
it take you a long time. And to be perfectly honest, you got to look it up, you know. So then you're really taking a long time. And so it's 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 too long for the average guy. Here is our hero is going to uh, appear as the uh, patron saint of Goldilocks, as I'll try to explain. This is too long, this is too short, this is just right. And so he was disappointed because he wants to teach his Talmudim halacha, but it's not practical for the typical yeshiva guy. This is what I mean by the Goldilocks. They're always guys, they're always like the best guys in base matters. You know, you always have those. But not that many of them. They're always a bunch of losers. No matter what you do, they're just wasting their time yeshiva. It's always going to be that. But there's a big middle. Right? Big middle. These are the middle that can that can use aids and helps to have master aloha. Not going to go through all shots, top to bottom, in and out. You know, like the Graw or Vadios or something like that, but if they have a good cheater book, and I don't mean them in a bad way, that'll help them. And he sees um, that this Beisiosu is too Barichas, and he conceives in his mind a grand project, uh, which is very typical of the 16th century, when everybody had Shulchan Aruch meaning there were a lot of people who wanted to write the Holy Grail. They wanted to write the book, that become the Halacha book uh, of all time, and we have this today. The one I look, one safer, that's written very clear and easy, and push and explains all Hilchah Shabbos. Ha! <laughs> yeah. well, who wouldn't? But never will be. You see, it's not the nature of Allah. But they didn't see it at that time that way. And so, he conceives the idea that he'll write a reworking of the Beis Yosef. What do I mean by that? Uh, it won't be so long. It's not one-liners. But it won't be so long. So the Beis has a long, whole long discussion on something. He'll cut it down to half the size, let's say, or something like that. Which means he'll do a very good editing job as he sees it. Maybe add a little bit. Basically, he will follow the guidelines of Beis Because I told you, people help from the Beis Yosef have a belt. And uh, even though the Beis was controversial for this arbitrary business of picking two out of three, you know, he says, whenever you're not sure what to do, you do the Rambam, the Rush, and the Rift, they're the big three, and you go back two out of three. But even the Beisios doesn't really do that. And, you know, it's oversimplistic. But he said his, his idea was, therefore, to write, I'll use a modern terminology, an art school version of the Beisios. It's not exactly the same thing, but something like that. And this was his project in the, as the 1550s go on. Now, I told you, he's born in 1530, so he's a guy in his 20s. I imagine... All this stuff hit him when he's 24, 25. You know, that's when these books start to hit the marketplace. Yosef Kara lived in Tzfat. But he had a chassid, shall we say, in Venice. The Menachem Zari de Fano, the Rama Bepano, as they call him, in the Shi world, even though the name is Fano, the town in Italy. Menachem Zari de Fano was a rich guy. He was a Makubal. No, he was into the Kabbalistic stuff. But he was a Gvir. And he said... You scholars of Tzfat, most especially Yosef Karo, you send me your stuff and I will pay for them to get published. And Venice had the best, for time the only, but the best Hebrew fonts, best quality Hebrew printing. And Yosef Karo was, was happy for it to happen. So by the standards of 16th century, he got you know high-tech publishing. And uh, that's why the books of Yosef Karo were transported by ship from Palestine to Venice, and, and and printed in Venice, paid for by uh, uh, Rama Mipano. So, 
if Hebrew books are being published in Venice, let me put it this way. Publishing books is a business. So if I'm in Venice and I'm going to print, let's say for argument's sake, a thousand copies of this Shulchan Aruch, the Tomei Beis Yosef, I'm going to sell it to the booksellers. One of the places they're going to have booksellers is Prague. Right? Prague is in Schnippeshit. It's not in Nowheresville. It's like a Bnei Prague. That's where you're going to swarm stores. And so, um, as the time goes on, and he sees another one of the Beis who comes out, and another one comes out, you know, or Chaim, and Chosha Mishpah, and so on and so forth. So he says, I'm going to have a, a life's work ahead of me, a grand project, to make a kind of a kitzer, but that's not the right word, a reworking in more compact and better form on the Beis Yosef, so that in yeshivas like my yeshiva and other yeshivas that I'm familiar with in Poland, they'll eat this stuff up. They'll eat this stuff up. I wouldn't use the word chayorim, um, because that's a little too kitzer, but just to give you just a general idea of what he had in mind. Now, just as he goes to work and starts working on this, um, the so it's it's a a big project he has in mind. Now the guy's only 20, 28, 29. Then when he's thirty one years old, there's a disaster hits because the Jews are expelled from Prague. Uh, Prague was the capital of King of Bohemia, part of the Holy Roman Empire, from the early fifteen hundreds, so on fifteen thirties, fifteen twenty five exactly. It was taken over by the Habsburgs because they married the, the the heiress to the throne. And this would be Ferdinand, the brother of the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. Not that that means anything to you, but that's who it is. And Ferdinand was a typical Habsburg Catholic prince. As long as he needs the money from the Jews, keep him there. When the Balabotham say kick him out, because they're competition us and all that. Make a long story short, he expelled the Jews from Prague, which was no joke. Eventually, they had to let them back in because they were essential for the economy. But it means the yeshivas were busted, the shuls were busted. Think about what I'm saying. Think about what I'm saying. You have a, a community, and then everybody has to clear out, physically clear out. If God forbid this hit, for example, Lakewood or something, they have to, to lock the doors of the yeshivas and the shuls and take the stuff with you. You know, it's just terrible. Now, where did the Jews go? Everybody went in a different direction. Our hero went to Venice. Venice. When I went to Venice, I'm not 100% sure. I have no doubt in my mind, being a proud Jew and being not poor, he had business interests, and a lot of the business was between Jewish merchants in Venice and Prague. They'd be unreal. That's what I think. Knowing what I know about the economics of the 16th century, that's what I would suggest. Uh, it's also true that, as I said before, I have another theory. In addition to his rebbeim on Nigla, the Ramah, the Marshal, who were still alive, alive in 1561, you know, um, he had another uh, rebbe he was tight with, which was this Matisio who was uh, who had learned in, in university in 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 uh, Bologna in in Italy, and so here's somebody, the rebbe I'm talking about, who's a Macabal and a philosopher. Now, usually you and I think of these as contradictory terms, if you understand properly what philosophy is. But that's philosophy of the 20th century, even of the 19th century. But in Middle Ages, there was a fashion, especially in Italy, especially in Italy, to to mix up together what you and I would call Kabbalah and philosophy. To try to prove the Kabbalah in philosophical terms, 
to try to prove philosophy in Kabbalistic terms, to use philosophical terms when dealing with Kabbalah, to use sometimes Kabbalistic terms in dealing with philosophy. I kid you not. This was such a powerful move, even at Goyim, what they were Christian Hebraists, right? Christian Kabbalists who were floating around at that time, Pika, Mandola, all these other guys. It was such an era. And um, so anyway, he went to Italy. Now, Venice itself did not have a university, but which is interesting. But Venice had a Kachsuk Jewish community. By the standards of Renaissance Italy, when the Jewish communities were extremely small, Venice had, I think, 2,000 people there. That's a lot. I know it doesn't sound like a lot to us, but it's a lot, and people come and go. And so by the standards then, it was a, it was a Mokham Torah. Um, like his Rebbeim, he, so he spent 10 years there. That's, I think that's just interesting. He spent 10 years. So he spent the uh, 1560s in um, in Venice. Uh, and uh, first of all, like I said before, it's a big port city, so I'm sure he did a lot of business stuff. He also learned of a storm because he's that type. He wouldn't be a guttle if he wasn't one of these big learners. But in addition to that, he put some serious time into what you and I would call university studies. Now, he didn't go to university, which I find interesting because he couldn't have done that in Padua. Instead, he stayed in um, Venice. Uh, so what it means is he took the college courses, but not the degree. Uh, again, as I understand it, I can only show you my understanding of this. I think because he was a frummy. And he wanted to have the philosophical knowledge, but he didn't want the philosophical, uh, you know, uh, secular side of it, if you follow what I mean. And all through his writings, all through his life, he's going to be unusual that he's a rov rov, a Polish a rov, in, in Shas and Poskim. And yet, at the same time, he has an education, I mean, a genuine education, in math and science and philosophy, as was understood in the 16th century. Okay? Uh, but it's always going to, I said it again, he's a frummy frummy, and therefore, it's always going to be within the context of trying to use the math and the science stuff and the philosophy stuff to prove the Torah, to prove the Kabbalah and all that business. So it's not really what we would have a secular education, but he, nevertheless, um, he'll write a book on uh, astronomy, you know, things like that. And he'll be, I don't know if you, you probably don't know this, and then get to it yet, one of the books that the Levush will write, because that's our hero, Mordechai Afi, is a commentary on the Mordechai believe it or not. Okay? So this is not your typical Rosh Hashiva Rav in Poland in the 1600s, who usually are purely just Torah, 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 nothing but. No, I said that wrong. Gemar, 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 and nothing but. You know, to veer off into Halacha was already considered a little breaked. Uh, here's somebody, like I said before, with a college education. Now again, in, in Venice, they didn't have a university, but they had what they call academies. So they had what you and I would say today would, would be college courses um, that were given, but without the formal framework and, um, you know, getting the degree and all the rest of it. Now, therefore, he he picked up a lot of secular studies, but in a very from environment. I, I wasn't there. I've been in Venice. I don't know the house he was in. You can go to the Jewish ghetto. You can see it. And uh, and life was not easy for the Jews then, but he was a, a Bohemian Jew. I don't know what his legal status is. I know a guy did a a, a dissertation on it years ago. I never saw it. I don't believe he went so far as to go over there and find out what his legal status would be. Because if he's a Venetian Jew, he's subject to a lot of um, discriminatory laws. If he's a Polish Jew, 
he could get around some of those laws. He was this guy was a Bohemian Jew, but he was expelled from Bohemia. So I don't know what the illegal status of. And in the Middle Ages, your legal status mattered a lot, how you were treated. But on the other hand, he was a, a capitalist and a, and a merchant, so that must have given him some uh, space. Now, during this time that he's landing his feet and throwing himself into, um, as I said before, into uh, secular studies and you know that sort of thing, rounding himself out, uh, just then, uh, he didn't get around yet to publishing his Kitzer of the Beis Yosef, right? Uh, had he stayed in Prague and the, the expulsion had happened, he would just have a happy time as Rosh Hashiva, but then he would have put it out. Instead, in 1565, in Venice, where he is, it published the Shulchan Archa of Yosef Karl. It was the same time, Menachem Mazaritifano, they shipped him from Pesvat, and he published the famous Kitzer of the Beis Yosef called the Shulchan Archa. Right? And uh, he said, well... I guess that put me out of a job. I was going to write a kid to the Shulchan Aruch. The guy did it. Yezu Kar did it. But then, when he saw the Shulchan Aruch, he said, it's a Shulchan Aruch Beli Melech. <laughs> it's a table without salt. Meaning, he went too far in the other direction. The Beis Yosef, I say it's like Goldilocks. The Beis Yosef is too barichas, too long. This Shulchan Aruch is too short. He doesn't give you one line. In other words, the classic complaint against the Shulchan Aruch has always been from day one. From day one. And our hero is one of the people who criticized Shulchan from day one. The Shulchan Aruch itself, without any of the fruit salad, without the Ramah, without the Mishnah Bur, you know, without any of the commentaries. Just the Shulchan Aruch. It's a Chidah Sestuma. You don't know what he's saying. If you know the Gemara is already in the background, or at least the tour, you have an idea what he's saying. But in order to do it right, you have, no, it's the proper way Rabbi Yosef Kaur had in mind was, I look at, I don't know what to do in Shul, on Shabbos morning. So I find a place in Shulchan Aruch where it talks about, I don't know, Chazar Shabbos. And then, I go, after reading the basics in the Shulchan Aruch, then I say, now let me go and do my work and read up the Beis Yosef. And when I read through the Beis Yosef, and then, I know where he's coming from. If I want to go a little bit beyond that, I'll look up, you know, the Sugi myself, which Riyazakar would say, you mean even better, right? But at least you did the Beis Yosef as a background. But if you just do the Shulchan Aruch straight, you'll misunderstand much of the time what he's talking about. Now this is the famous conundrum that, a, that every writer of a book of halacha faces. Are you too long or too short? If it's too long, you lose everybody. You understand? I mean, all the time you go to a bookstore, somebody will publish a safer, on, especially nowadays, day, today, on one simon in the Shulchan Aruch. 100 pages, 200 pages. Okay. Glad it turned you on, then I really should read it, but it's not going to happen. You know, I got a life. It's not going to happen. You see? So it goes too long. You give me 50 pages of mutza on one little detail, I don't take away from your scholarship because it is impressive. Nobody's going to read it, right? Uh, or very few. On the other hand, if you do if you do too much with kids, sir, you're always miss. Uh, 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 leading the reader because they don't understand the complexity of the issue. This is a problem from Pasking from English books, even art school books, because they by definition have to under under uh, under emphasize the complexity of the issue. You know they're good, they have their uses, they're great actually, but you know that that doesn't mean that that's necessarily how you Pasking in a particular case.
Now, um, particular case that has some issues involving in it. So, at that point, this is 1565, our hero, who's 35 years old, is a private citizen in uh, Venice. I'm sure he was hawking and learning with the other big rabbis in Venice, which there were, right? Which there certainly were. And, and the Marampada was not far away in place of people like that. Uh, so, uh, he saw, he said, well, th this is a uh, uh, I wasted my time. Let's put it this way. I said that wrong. This basically, this uh, kid, uh, Shulchan Aruch is not doing the job. And so he started to think how to make it better. However, he says, uh, looking at the Shulchan Aruch, which you can do much easier to survey that than um, than the Beis Yosef. As a matter of fact, Yosef Karl himself has this whole famous you know, system. I don't know who he's talking about. He said, you know, you can learn the whole Shulchan in a month or two or something like that. You know, every day, 50, 60, 70, some of them. For the regular Balabas, I don't know what Balabas he meant, he meant in Sfat in the 1500s, but there ain't nobody like that as a Balabas going to read 50, some of them, or how many it is in the Shulchan Aruch. But whatever the case is, um, he conceived the idea of trying to supplement, not exactly the way he said before, which was to write another Kitzer of the Beis Yosef, but to write what, what I will call in shorthand a Ramah. Notice he left out the Ashkenazic stuff. When you just read through the um, uh, Shulchan Aruch, you don't get the full flavor of the Beis Yosef. You see, if you look at the Beis Yosef, he will bring down most of the time what Tozu said, you know, what uh, Benotam said, Rashi said, people like that. It could be that when it comes to Halach Lamaisa, after a whole discussion in the Beis Yosef, he'll say we go like the Rambam. But, okay, at least you, the student have um, had exposure to the different opinions on the subject. Whatever. When it gets to the Shulchan Aruch, very often, he just gives you the one line from the Rambam. Because that's how he passes in the end. You don't even know that the other things exist. You understand? If you're just reading the Shulchan Aruch, you don't even know there's other opinions out there among the Roshonim on that particular halacha. Balet or whatever. I repeat, in the Beis Yosef it's there, but not in the, in the Kitz Shulchan Aruch. So he said he's going to write that. Well, this happened in 1565 while he's in Venice. By the time he moves from Venice, which is 1570-1571, when he's about 40 years old, Eric, he moved to uh, Poland. Moved to Poland. Uh, that's when the Ramal came out in 1571. So in other words, he is growing up years in his 20s and his 30s, and by the time he's 41, the Beziosa came out, the... Uh, uh, Shulchan Aruch came out, the Darkei Moshe came out, and the Mapov, the Ramon Shulchan Aruch came out. So in other words, everything he wanted to do was Oiskechav. And I repeat, he had been a student of the Ramon, so, I mean, it's not like he's jealous or something like that, but he's not going to do what the Ramon did, but not true. When he looked at the Ramon, he says, also too much, Bekitzer. The style of the Bechav and Ramon is very appetitic, you know, boom, boom, boom. There's a din, there's a din, there's a din, again, too uh, abrupt. And he felt there's still room for, for for a better job. When I say a better job, a job that'll work for in a middle brow culture. I told you he's Goldilocks. What about the regular people out there who know how to learn, but they don't have time to go through the whole shots all the time to deal with the child? The great mass of Yeshiva graduates, shall we say, Yeshiva students, who, if they had the right tool in their hand, would learn up everything. But because they have these more difficult things, 
So the, the, the market for it, the audience is much more limited. To whom is a Shulchan Aruch minus anything else? Just a plain Shulchan Aruch. Who is that of value to? You see, that, that's what he's saying. And even the Shulchan Aruch with the Ramal, which becomes more valuable, but who is that of value to? Can you just... I mean, a die-in or somebody like this is holding all the time in halacha, okay. But even the regular learner, the regular guy who has a charizu with somebody, if they don't have the right text in front of them, having shulchan aruch and all is not going to help. So you know what having it, um, it's not working to create a halachically knowledgeable middle-class laity of ex-yeshiva guys and graduates and things like that out there, which is what is needed more than anything else in his opinion. That's where we're coming from, in his opinion. Uh, and now I want to say something. Because these books came out, uh, he figured that point in his life, I'm talking about when he was in in the 1560s, so when he was 30 years old, and then 35 when the Shulchan came out, and all this, he figured it is not his destiny to write halacha books. Others are doing it. And so... He turned his attention, because he clearly was ambitious. Nothing wrong with being ambitious. And he wanted to be a famous machaber, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. And so he started writing notes on um, other things, not halacha books. Uh, most importantly, in my opinion, would be his book on Rashi, you know, the Levoshan Rashi, Chumash Rashi. Uh, the Maral of Prague, he already come out with the Gor Aryeh, and, um, you know, which goes line by line in Rashi. He disagreed a lot with the, with the Maral. Nothing wrong with that. You can do that. Uh, and so, and he held, he was descendant of Rashi. She so held it every word the Rashi writes is Kodesh Kadoshim. And all the critics of Rashi are wrong. And a lot of the Gurari, he says, is in Baloney. He says those words. It's Hevel Avolim and it's Divri Nevius and Ruach. So he, he had, uh, on Chumash Rashi, he had, uh, what's the right word? Scholarly disagreements. With his contemporary, the Moral. Moral would be probably five years older than him. Uh, just to give you an idea of what's going on. Uh, so he's, he he wrote uh, his notes, his commentary on the Marnavuchim during those years. He figured to make a splash in philosophy. After all, he's in Italy and uh, he was taking philosophy classes. Not in university, but in this college kind of clep way. And uh, he has all these notes. Uh, I think it's called the Bush Pin of Secrets later on uh, the Marnavuchim of all things. By the way, when he says the Marnavuchim, he means the Marnavuchim as published with the Mikritz Gadolas. In other words, the way it was published in Venice, uh, which must have made a big splash. A lot of what he did is affected by what books were published in the 16th century, in the 16th century which is a scholarly discussion that will take us too far afield. But there's the famous book by the Rambam Marnavuchim, Guy for the Perplexed. It, over the course of time, it, it acquired um, commentaries. When they published it in Italy in the 1500s, so they did it with what they called the Micros, they don't call it the Micros Gadolas, but the four commentaries. There's a Barbanum, there's the Aphodi, there's a Shemtov, and then there's Crescus. That's not identical with Chaste Crescus. Many make that mistake. It's a different Crescus. So again, it's the Shemtov, it's the Aphodi, it's the Abarbanel, and um, the other guy. Um, uh, uh, and I guess Crescus. Now, um, this is very famous. They're called the, the, the Four Sons. Once the Chacham runs the Russia, once the Talmud, once the Ene Lishol. I forget which one is which, except it. I think the Barbano was the Chacham. I think. 
Now, um, uh, I know you only want to know who's the Russia. That's easy. Or emotion or bony is the Russia. Uh, the he was too far left. The other two I forget. Now, anyway, uh, one of them is the Lavush. See, he's writing comments. I want you to understand how much he went into this. Comments and criticisms, what the Rambam wrote upstairs, but also on the Aphodi, also on the Shemtov. I mean, he really is around nitty-gritty into the details that are Mordevukim. So this was going to have his career as what we would say today is a Moscow. Meaning somebody's writing things other than Gemara, other than Shas and Poskim. Um, he wrote a book on, on um, astronomy, uh, and uh, Rambam's uh, laws for, uh, he met a Sephardi there who taught him well, because his Sephardi had a good astronomy education. Rambam Hilchus Kiddush HaChodesh. How many people understand that stuff? In any generation, not to be funny, how many people really understand this stuff? You know, he wanted to be one of the few that do. And so forth. At the age of 40 or 41, he moves to Poland, where he spends the rest of his life. So, the next uh, 40 years. Because I'll tell you again, he was uh, he died at the age of 82. It's a long time. So, halfway. He moved in when he was 41 and lived another 41 years in Poland. What are you going to do in Poland? Now, again, I'm sure... He had business interests, and money was not a problem for him. He's a member of the elite. The Afi family was an elite family. They're married to right people. They knew the right people, and they had business connections. So they're doing international business and stuff like that. All that's harm's and true. Having said that, he's a big Tom Chacham. He wanted a job. And because he had the right connections and the right money and this, that, and the other, see, he became a big player in the Polish rabbinical politics, of late 1500s, early 1600s, which was identical with the golden age of the Jews in Poland. At that time, the Jews had a good in the old kingdom of Poland, Lithuania, which no longer exists, as I keep saying. And uh, he became a big macher in the Vada Abarotsos. As a matter of fact, he's one of the people that made Vada Abarotsos without getting too technical. It used to be the Vada of three Abarotsos, and he had a Lithuanian to make it four Abarotsos. He was a player. Now, he's a rabbi. In this town, this town, this town, it almost doesn't matter. You know, uh, the first place he went to, he had a fight with somebody. This is this is the politics of those days. Uh, there already was a rabbi there who had a yeshiva, so the two yeshivas clashed. He said, the heck with I'm out of here. He went to Lublin later on, which is a very important community. He was in Prague for a little while, you know, um, although I've never understood that, but uh, that would be too detailed. I don't want to get you too historically detailed over here. He said he was in a time of the morale, and they switched off back and forth. It's, it's, it doesn't stem with what I know about uh, Prague, but it doesn't even matter. And he ended up imposing. So in other words, we'd say today, he was rabbi in Lakewood, and then in Muncie, and there was a chief rabbi in Baltimore, and there was a chief rabbi, you know, in uh, Brooklyn. You know, that kind of, he had important positions. Right? And that's who he was for the rest of his life. So here's somebody who was an Abbasian. That means, in the old days, you run, you do all the shals and chubas, although we don't have his. Uh, you have to paskin all the shals, you have to beat Abbasian. He also was teaching Talmudian, no question about it. But it's also true that here in this time, he conceived this grand project in which he put in the best years of the rest of his life. His 40s, his 50s, his 60s, and his 70s, dying in the early 80s. Um, that's a long time. And here he wrote his Shulchanar. And basically, the idea was, as I said before, Goldilocks. You know, the others have written, but I can do it better. When I say I can do better, I'm going to write it in a way they'll be of greater use for much more of the Hamonam, if we understood the Hamonam being the intelligentsia. The guys who have learned the yeshivas, they now learn, but now to learn 
couple of you know years in yeshiva doesn't make you able to paskin shilas. And who can go through a whole dal chalki shulchanach? I'm going to write a book that'll make it possible for you to go through dal chalki shulchanach. And that's what it is his lavush. Okay, his name is Mordechai Yafi. Mordechai. Esther, I'm telling you this because today's the yard side, tomorrow's the yard side, but um, next week is Purim. His name was Mordechai, and he uh, wrote all of his books with the titles from the Megillus Esther, chapter 8, verse 15, where it says, Mordechai Yotzim Lifni Amelech, Bilvush Malchus, Tcheles Vachur, Vater Zahov, Gedolov, Vesachrich Boots, Bargamon, Briar Shishon. So, that famous passage that we all say out loud, do we not, in the no, Shulchan I mean, in important when we read the Megillah. So, what does all that mean? Mordechai Yotzel Fnei Hamelch. Mordechai went out Milfnei Hamelch, Belvush Malchus, in royal apparel of Tchelis Vachur, blue and white, Vater Zahov Gedola, and a great crown of gold, with Tachrich boots of Argamon, and a garment of fine linen and purple. Vir Shushan Tolovus Amecha. Now, you have to understand, our hero is a great writer. He has a tremendous education. So it's very cool. Mordechai is going out before the Melech. Notice, when I get to heaven, and I'm going to go before the Melech, I want to bring with me clothing. You approach the Divine Presence. <laughs> you don't want to be standing naked. How would you like if you walk into, uh, you know, a king or a president or something like that, and then your, your, your clothes fall off, Right? Like that Gemara with the with the with the shotness and the brachas, right? No, how would you like that? Uh, how embarrassing! Well, from a very frumly perspective, if you die without mitzvahs or any Torah, you're going to walk into heaven where you're naked, right? So he's going to walk in with like the original Mordechai, Lefni Hamelch. He's going to have Levush Malchus. He's going to have Tchelis Vachur. He's going to have Tchelis Aterzaz Av Gedola, Tachich Butz all the fancy apparel. These mean the name of the books. You understand the name of the books he writes. You follow? That's that, that's that's one of this. And so he uh, proceeded to publish in almost in order um, his version, parallel version of the Shulchan uh, So the first one. Let me pull out my rusty, trusty Menachem Elon here. Bulvusha Rishon. On Torah Chaim Malaf. So that's what you call the Vush. So basically, you're following the puzzle. Mordechai Yolotzom, Nea, Lifnea Melch, Bil Vush Malchus, Tcheles Vachor, right? So the first one's going to be called Levush Tcheles. That's the first half of Orachaim, okay? And then Tcheles Vachor, that one's going to be called Levush Chor. So it's the first half of Orachaim up to Shabbos and from Shabbos to the end. The part in Shabbos. The, fir- the first part, Levush Malchus, is regular halachas up to Shabbos and then from there on. And then the third volume, right, would be Yordea. So, Levush Malchus, Tcheles Vachur, Vater Zohov, Gedolov. So, this is what he's going to call, Kol Mashanik, right, Krosiv, Levush Ateres Zohov, Gedolov. That's the name of the Sefer. So, his Yordea is Levush Ateres Gedolov. It's artificial, it's taken from the Pasuk, okay? As he says it over here, Okay, that's the crown of the rabbi. Ah, rabbi, it's artificial. But the point of the matter is, you're following the pasuk. So you start with Arachayim, 
That's a Lubush Malchus Tchelis Bechur, Lubush Tchelis and Bechur. And then the next one's Lubush Ater Zahov. Then you know the next one, right? Which is going to be the Ebenezer. Okay? So what's it going to be? Lubush Boots, because it says Tachrich Boots of Argamon. So the boots, which is uh, what the, uh, the the fine linen. Um, and then what else are you going to do? Then the last one, which is volume five, because volume one and two was Archaim, that's going to be. Uh, wait a minute, that was. Uh, I'm sorry. That's the Ebenezer part. And then the last one's going to be Yerushushan. Uh, In other words, Lubushmachus Chelis Vachor, that's one and two. That Terezov Gedola is three. Betachrich Boots, Ragamon is four. And again, he tries to put a shtick on it that Choshen Mishma is necessary for ear, for a, a, a community, a city to, to function. Because without civil law, you know, how's it going to go? And so forth. And here, anybody familiar with the Lubush knows, he is the prototype of the Arach HaShulchan. These are the two guys that have the same way. And you know what I'm talking about, Dan, if I put it that way. You discuss with a necessary hagdama and a flowing style all the dinim. Right? Now, obviously, the Archa Shokhan written in the 19th century. He must look to the Levush as a model. Levush was the one who came up with this. And he himself says that, you know, I'm telling you, I keep using the word Golux, but that, that, that's the language that he actually used. He said, I picked the Derech HaMamutso. Okay? I picked something... That my savior is going to be in the uh, in the middle between being too short and too long. The base too long. And the other side is the shulchanarch, which is too which is too short. And my book the lebush right? It'll be in the middle. I explain in greater detail when necessary, not just so sharply, boom, 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 like the Shulchan Aruch. On the other hand, in other places where you don't need it, you 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 shorten the text. Okay? So it'll be for the right reason. And we will stop this business of the Yeshiva guys, as he puts it, you know, knowing how to learn, but not not not, not knowing how, how to paskin. But he's really tough on them. He says, you know, I've been in the Yishi world and all the guys are thinking of is a good shit I can get rich and then you don't have to work anymore. Right? Um, Why do you want to be one of those uh, loser Yeshiva guys? The whole idea is to be able to talk and learning like you actually know something. And then you get a good girl, meaning a rich girl, and get a big nadunya, and then basically you say, yes, now I'm fixed for life. <laughs> yeah? Well, that's a t- oh, listen, it does say you should learn Shalol Shema, but not like that. You see? And so he was really trying uh, to make it possible to go through the whole Shulchan Aruch for the average guy with a Chavrusa, and literally the whole Shulchan Aruch. You could do the whole Amenza that way. You could do the whole Chosha Mishpah that way. Think about what I just said. Now, that means they create an excellent cheater book. And everybody knows that. Right? It's a lot easier to read the Levush than to read the Shulchanach or the Beis Yosef. Now, here comes the situation where you need Mazel. Is it Hakal Trichem Torah? Hakal Trichem Mazel, I feel safer Torah Shavahichol. 
You need muzzle. The lavush does not have muzzle. The lavush is a great work. As you can see here, the author was a fantastic Talmud Chacham. He was, for 40 years, second 40 years, a rov in the biggest communities in Poland. He was a big macher in the Vada Baratzos. So in other words, he's a posik posik. Minu shas shas. And anybody who's undertaking to write a parallel version of Shulchan Aruch by, by definition is going to go on it. And he is a good writer. Um, I wouldn't say that he... I mean, at the end of the day, he did not have a college education. So as far as I can tell, he's a good writer, but he's not like, you know, Ramchal or somebody who had a formal education in expository writing and uh, rhetoric, as they call it, and things like that. Our hero is more like in logic. Uh, that's where he's always into. And uh, having said that, he's a pretty good writer. And it's 100% possible to go through Shulchan Aruch with the now, uh, and he makes it much easier for you than having just to learn the Shulchan Aruch itself. Now, by now, we have a thousand cheater books on the Shulchan Aruch, you know. Anybody, for example, is learning for Smicha, you know, it's 10 million cheater books, which is good. I'm saying, here's something that published around 1590s, early 1600s. He died in 1612. Uh, I won't say people, uh, at least as far as I can tell, it wasn't used that much, okay? Plus, it's also true that there were complaints against him. The Hainu, he made mistakes. Dehainu, people disagreed with a lot of his pesachim. They also agreed with a lot of it. Now that's going to happen, you understand? But that doesn't take away the utility of it. So if you're interested at all in what I'm saying today, and we have Purim around the corner, and you want to do something interesting, get a hold of the bush. There's a new edition now for the last 20 years or so that's finally readable and you know nice and all the rest of it from the Zichron Hour. They did a good job. At least in terms of the, the, the print and all the rest of it. Things I care about. It's not in the kudos, but it's pretty good. And um, uh, you could totally do Hilchus uh, Purim on Dilabush. Uh, it's not that long, after all. Let's see the style of the bush. You'll see it is a kind of article the Shulchan way. They don't write exactly the same, but they write fundamentally the same. And it's just very interesting somebody was thinking this up because it's the only safer I can think of where it was written specifically with the idea of making a good educative tool. Usually the great scholars in Jewish history, with the exception of the Rambam, uh, and Rashi, as you can tell, just wrote. You know, and now we have to knock our heads to figure out what they mean. The Rambam, we know from what he wrote, letters, that he gave a great deal of thought of the presentation of how it should be. And he drafted and redrafted and so forth. But that's because the Rambam had this excellent secular education in creative writing and, and rhetoric and logic and those sorts of things. Usually it's not like that. But the Levush is like that. He had in mind to take the material of others. He's not machadish anything in terms of a new style. He follows the Dal Chalakim, the Shulchan Aruch. He just calls them different names. It's the same way. Uh, it's the same material. And, you know, he offers his own opinions, obviously. But he's a Bar Haki. Now, uh, uh, it didn't take off. I don't know if so many Levush being printed a million times. Not as far as I'm aware. And um, others wrote to attack it. When I mean attack it, meaning on, on scholarly grounds, you know, disagree with it. And many farm have written like that. Uh, he also had a big fan. You know who helped from the book a lot? El Yarabo. Now, I'm, many people don't know this because in Yeshiva and the, and the Mishnah Burra, they quote all the time to El Yarabo, El Yosh Shapiro from Prague in the 1600s. And very popular halacha sefer, often quoted. Many think El Yarabo is, 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 is on the Shulchan Aruch. 
And sometimes I've even seen it printed that way. But that's not correct. The Elio Rabba is a commentary on the Lavush. And when you get this new Zip and Iron set, what is it, eight volumes or something? They have the whole Elio Rabba, as it's properly supposed to be, underneath the Lavush. So he held from it. You see what I'm saying? And uh, it is surprising that people didn't just sit down and say, oh, yes. Now, let's go through Hilchus Pesach, which is a whole pain in the neck. We'll, we'll, we'll do it, you know, with this uh, Sefer of the Bush. I'm talking about in the 1600s. And he will be like an Archishon for us. You see? Um, it didn't quite get that kind of a... It, it didn't take off as he thought it would take off. The Yeshiva world is a strange place, and logical things don't necessarily run to the front. <laughs> Let me put it that way. They don't necessarily run to the front. Now, on the other hand, he was a major player. So the Levush didn't become the book, but it became a book. He certainly became one of the great Achronim, no question about it. And the sheets of the Levush is always out there. People are, you know, discussing it back and forth. Just because the Levush said something doesn't end the discussion, right? It's not like, oh, he had the total, you know, authority. But having said that, he was a, a big player in his day. And afterwards, uh, I mentioned a year ago or something when I did to get a Vienna, which is too, take us too long to describe now. He was one of the people who sided with the Marm Lublin. And on his deathbed, it's a famous thing. He says, I'm writing this to say that I, th- I agree that the boy was ripped off by the girl's family. And I'm writing this. He says, I'm on my deathbed. And I have this uh, witness by two, two uh, um, the witnesses standing here that I'm signing this uh, chuba in which I'm signing with the Marm Lublin against all the others, against the uh, Sma. And... Um, you know, uh, my hand is shaking, so they'll, they'll witness that it was really me who did this. And in other words, he disagreed with the other big rabbis in Poland. So he was a uh, a player, you understand? He's a big macher. Now, the style of the, of the uh, what do you call it, the Lavush, is he tells it over like the Archa Shulman style as he goes through the dinim. But he also throws in a lot of stuff from Kabbalah because... He was one of these people, as I said before, in the 1500s, who mischief together the Kabbalah and the um, and the Halo and the and the Nigla and the Nister. Uh, again, here you see the Italian influence. The ten years he spent there is very interesting because his Rebbe had, had learned there, and he was very into the Riccanati. It's interesting, the famous Menachem Riccanati, being Macubal, the from the Italy in the 1200s, his peers on the Chumash was published a few years before the birth of the Lavush, and he obviously was really into it. Now, he's a contemporary of the Ari and people like that. So, I don't think he knew about their stuff. He, you're talking about somebody who was a Makubal in pre-Arizal style. No, 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 I'll do better than that. Here's somebody who's a Makubal. He was a Makubal. In pre-Moshe um, Cordovero style. Because during these years, is when Venice was publishing for the first time the works of the Ramak and the works of the Rizzo. Okay? It was when our hero was like an older man already that, that the, uh, uh, well, the Ari died when he was 40, when, when our hero was 42. Um, but by the time he throws the rook, then the other guys are arguing over what exactly Arizal said. He was already a big rabbi in Poland, you know, in the Nigla sense. So, by by publishing a a, a, a pirish on the Menachem Merkanadi, uh, he's showing you where his his kabbalistic ideas are into, 
Durikanati also went to college. Uh, and again, he didn't take formal courses, but he studied philosophy. In Italy, evidently, the, the influence of universities and the logical tradition, as they understood at that time, was so powerful that the Mokobolim were convinced that to properly understand these very recondite Kabbalistic ideas, you have to be able to express them in philosophical ways, um, meaning ways that make sense. You know what I mean? Is this, because let's face it, all the Kabbalah terms are lav dafka, you know, you don't really mean there's a sphere out there, it's an expression. Uh, Simpson, is that an expression or not? You know, these kind of issues. And uh, he was in there. But his main, uh, let me put it this way, if he hadn't published Little Bush, he'd be a very minor figure. And most of us wouldn't be discussing what does some rabbi impose and say about, you know, Menachem Rekhanati or whatever from the 500 years beforehand. It's the Shulchanach that he wrote, the Levush, which again, I tell you, is based on positive. Mordechai Yotzel Vemelch, the Levush Malchus Chez Bechor and all the rest of it. This is what put him on there. I would recommend, you know, if you want my opinion, just for you, you might find that this speaks to you um, uh, to get the Levush and go through Elchus Purim. And see if it's uh, if it's an easy way to work for you. If you do, you could do a lot worse than going through uh, Archaim, you know, Purim and Pesach and that sort of thing with the Lubush. Because like the other guy, like like the Archashulam, he gives reasons, a little sermonette here and there. He doesn't write boring. He does not write boring. Uh and very opinionated, which he's entitled to be. And so you end up with an unusual situation. From the perspective of writing, he probably was the best writer of the fifteen hundreds. But it's all mazel. From the perspective of which book took off, um, I wouldn't say it took off. A little bit like the Archa Shulchan in our time. From the perspective of writing, you might say it's the best. It didn't beat the Mishnah Bura. It did not happen. But on the other hand, it's a very powerful sefer. Uh, it's huge. It's a whole Shulchan Aruch. And anybody could turn out his own version of Shulchan Aruch is obviously a major player. So we started, as I said before, Today's podcast was uh, sponsored by memory of a Polish Yid who went through the Holocaust. And here I spoke about a Polish Yid who went through the opposite of the Holocaust, lived in the golden age of the Jews of Poland. The history of Klaistral is full of situations in which it depends what century you're in. In one time, it could be a great time, a fantastic time, Torah-wise and otherwise. In other times, it could be a Holocaust. With that happy thought, I, I wish you a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.